the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Lenny Mendoza, former Chief Economic and Business Advisor for the State of California and a proud member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and I'm your moderator for today's program. This program is being held today in partnership with the Tipping Point community, and we thank them. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's program called Made by the Bay, Imagining Our Next Chapter. You've all heard things like, I love New York, or keep Portland weird, or Virginia is for lovers, or don't mess with, don't mess with Texas. Um, we all know the slogans. We all say them sometimes with derision. But how do we sum up the Bay Area? The Bay Area offers the world culture, diversity, natural beauty, innovation, and commitment to progress. Yet, as we all know, the Bay wrestles with persistent housing challenges and new stories about the Bay Area exodus, or as I like to call it, exodus hype. Layer on the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's no surprise that regional pride and confidence in the Bay Area is taking a hit. But at this moment of unprecedented crisis, we can also have this be a turning point for the Bay Area. Today, we're pleased to have a panel of Bay Area locals who are going to help us discuss how the Bay shaped who they've become, why they call this region home, and different solutions to rebuilding and strengthening the Bay Area. Our speakers will wrestle with how we can not only recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, but create the vibrant, equitable, and sustainable region that we all aspire to live in. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists, Sam Cobb. Wave, Sam. How are you? Sam's the CEO of Tipping Point Community which since 2005 has invested over $300 million to fight poverty in the Bay Area. Sam grew up in the Mississippi Delta, which he reminds people is the poorest part of the poorest state in the country. After high school, he followed his father to the Bay Area and began his 20-year career in the nonprofit sector. Prior to joining Tipping Point, he served as the CEO of First Place for Youth, where he grew the organization from a community-based nonprofit into a national model for supporting foster youth. Sam is a trained social worker, raising twin daughters with his wife in the Bay Area, and he remains an unapologetic Raiders fan. Good to be part of the nation here with you. Uh, our next panelist is Heather Knight, who is a San Francisco Chronicle columnist working out of City Hall and covering everything from politics to homelessness to family flight and the quirks of living in one of the most fascinating cities in the world. She believes in holding politicians accountable for their decisions, or often lack thereof, and telling the stories of real people and their struggles. She hosts the Chronicle's Total SF podcast and co-founded its total, hashtag Total SF program to celebrate the wonder and whimsy of everything that is San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Heather. And finally, and last but not least, is Ned Siegel. Hi, Ned. Ned is Twitter's chief financial officer 
leading the company's traditional finance functions along with things like corporate development and business development. Prior to joining Twitter, Ned was the senior vice president of finance for Intuit Small Business Group, spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs, and currently serves on the board of directors of Beyond Meat, but his career highlight may still be his tenure as a hot dog vendor at Candlestick Park from 1988 to 1992. They didn't have Beyond Meat hot dogs then, did they, Sam? Or uh, Ned? Not yet. Okay. Uh, Ned and his wife live in their hometown of San Francisco with their three children, where he loves walking the neighborhoods, watching kids sports, eating, and taking Muni to San Francisco Giants games. So welcome, everyone. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Lenny. Great. So why don't we start the questions? And I'd like to start them on a little bit more of a personal basis and just kind of ask you as as longtime residents of the Bay Area, how is the Bay Area shaped who you who you are? How is the Bay Area shaped who you are? And let me start with you, Heather. Um, I grew up in Davis, so not too far outside the Bay Area and native Northern California. And I've been here pretty much my whole life um, with short stints in Washington, D.C. and New York. But um, vast majority of the time it's been here and I've been in San Francisco for 22 years. Um, I got my Chronicle job when I was five years old. So, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I love the city. Um, it really, I've been here um, pretty much, you know, for two decades and covering it. I joke that as a um, resident, it can be extremely frustrating, but there's probably no better city to cover as a columnist because um, there's no shortage shortage of fodder. I have a longer story list than I could ever get to because there's just so much going on here and um, it's hard to keep up with it, but I, I love giving it a shot. Excellent. Thank you, Heather. Um, Ned, how about you? So we moved to the Bay Area when I was a baby and to San Francisco when I was about nine. And when I think about traits that represent the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular, I think about uh, being progressive and optimistic. And those are traits that I feel like were ingrained in me as a child, thanks to my parents, thanks to the environment around us. But people in our part of the world are convinced that we can solve any problem. There certainly are many left to solve. Uh, We are uh, brought up to challenge norms and to think about things differently than people might think about them in other parts of the world or than we've thought about them historically. And those traits, are ca- they cause people to move here from all over the world. They cause people to start companies naive enough to think that they can uh, beat uh, a, an incumbent or come up with a new way to solve an old problem. And I try to just take those same approaches, whether I'm parenting or CFOing or hanging out at a Giants game. Great. Thanks, Ned. And uh, the optimism is certainly in the Giants fans this year so far. So, um, so Sam, uh, San Francisco is a little different from the Mississippi Delta. So how has the Bay Area shaped you, San Francisco? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Lenny, for the question and, and for moderating us today. The, the, as you said, coming from Mississippi, the Bay Area, when I, the first time I came, it, it could have been on another planet. I, I saw things and experienced things that I've never seen before. But the biggest thing that has shaped me at the Bay Area is the abundance of opportunity. And so when you're when you're living in a place like the Mississippi Delta, there is everyone there wants a like wants opportunity. Uh, but there really was none. And coming to the Bay Area, there's just there was just an abundance of opportunity. And I actually felt that if I could take the abundance of opportunity with what my my father in, in Mississippi still instilled in me was that that go get it attitude. My father had a saying it was that you got to go get it because nobody's going to bring it to you, that I could make a life for myself and my family in the Bay Area. And so what is what has kept me here is 
on some level, that was very true. Uh, on another level, what I realized was that, that there were some trap doors there and that that opportunity was there, but it was really hard uh, to grab that opportunity. And, and what has shaped me as a leader is that I want those rungs of that ladder, uh, that ladder to be opportunity to not be so wide uh, for other people in the Bay Area uh, as they were for me. Great. Thanks, Sam. And glad you're here and glad you're focusing on those topics. And so I'm, I'm going to continue a little bit with you since you've had a, a really unique and broad-based lens on the nonprofit world in the Bay Area in San Francisco in particular, um, but with both your prior roles and certainly now at, at Tipping Point Community. So can you talk for a little bit about the role that you see nonprofits playing in shaping the future of the Bay Area and how you're thinking about that at Tipping Point or as we recover, hopefully, from the hits of COVID-19? Yeah, definitely, Lenny. And, and so, you know, before talking about the, the role that nonprofits will play in the future, I just have to acknowledge the role that, they've, that they're playing right now and have been playing for a long time. I often uh, talk about nonprofits in the Bay Area, and we have a wonderful nonprofit sector here. Uh, we have organizations and very similar to the way that that we think about innovation in tech and, and things that were born here uh, in the Bay Area, uh, nurtured here in the Bay Area, and then spread to other parts of the country and in even the world. And so that means that there are a lot of the solutions that that we're here trying to solve, the problems that we're trying to solve, that there have been solutions that have been created here and, and spread out. And so I often talk about nonprofits in the Bay Area as being another kind of first responder, that, that there doesn't have to be a crisis or, or a fire for nonprofits to get that first call. You know, they're usually the first call that, that people make when they can't pay their rent. They're usually the first call that, that people make when their kids are having a hard time in school uh, and they may need some, some mental health counseling or, or ways to deal with, with some of that bullying. And so that is the role that the nonprofits uh, play in our region right now. I am hoping that we can envision a Bay Area and work toward a Bay Area where that's actually not needed, that we're, that we're working to put nonprofits and ourselves out of business because we're envisioning a world that where everyone not only has what, it, what they need to make it or what it is that they need to survive, but they actually have what they need to thrive in the Bay Area. And I think we... Can make that we can make that happen here, and until we get to that point, our nonprofits are still going to be incredibly uh, important to us because they're going to be the ones that allow people again to grab onto that opportunity and to move that opportunity uh, forward and to change the trajectory of their lives and the lives of their families. Great, thank you, Sam. And do you want to come back, and we'll come back to you in a little bit about how you're thinking about Tipping Point's role in uh, engaged in that conversation, but uh, appreciate that. So Heather, um, you know, it's, it's clear as we read your column in the Chronicle that you really love San Francisco and the Bay area. Um, but you also don't shy away from criticisms, whether that's, that's the city, the people who are here, the organizations, et cetera. Um, you could live anywhere you wanted doing what you do, um, but you stay here. Um, so why are you still here? Um probably because my family would kill me if I moved too far away, but um, <laughs> I do have roots, like I said, here, and I've just always been here. So um, the job, the friends, the family, but I think what makes San Francisco really special is number one, the beauty. 
I mean, there's no city, I would argue, on earth as beautiful as San Francisco, um, from our hills and our parks and our cable cars and the Giants ballpark and the ocean. I mean, there's just so much to see and, and love. And um, you just, every anywhere you walk is like so special. And you can take a friend from out of town to some random park that you just take for granted and you're at your house. And they're like, oh my God, this view, it's amazing. And it's just, you know, pretty much every corner of the city is like that. There's so much to do. Um, the beaches, I'm raising two little boys. There's no shortage of activities for them. Um, despite what people say, this is a great place to raise kids in a lot of ways. Um, and the excellent food. Um, I was at a going away party for a colleague the other day in the Tenderloin, and we decided to get food. Went into some random hole-in-the-wall restaurant nobody had ever tried, but it was the only thing open, and it was amazing. And we said, we really can't go out for a bad dinner in San Francisco because they would be out of business by now if if it wasn't great food. So the creativity and the fun, and I went to a drag club show at the Oasis the other night. And I mean, there's just, you can't be bored in San Francisco or you're not really trying. So I think that it's important as we discuss all of these um, huge problems facing us to also appreciate the great stuff that is here in San Francisco that makes it worth fighting for. Great. And just to follow up with you about what keeps you here professionally. So you could be writing about any other place in the in the country, but what is it about San Francisco that keeps you here professionally in addition to the long list of things that are so wonderful about the city personally? Yeah, um, I love working at the Chronicle. We have a history of amazing columnists who really get dig into their city and experience it and live it. And um, I don't think any journalist should be sitting behind their desk all day. Um, I love being out and about and meeting new people, going to new places. And the Chronicle really encourages that. When I said um, with my colleague, Peter Hartlob, a few years ago, we want to ride every Muni bus line, cable car line and train in the city in one day and end at the Giants ballpark um, for a game. Most newspaper editors, I imagine, especially on the East Coast, would be like, what are you talking about? But the Chronicle is quirky and fun. And they said, go for it. And so I get to do the serious stuff, the fun stuff. And I think that that's a really perfect representation of San Francisco. Great. Well, keep it coming. Um, so, so, Ned, um, the tech industry's played a really important leadership role in the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular, um, especially during the pandemic. Um, and as you well know, Twitter was one of the first, if not the first major tech company in the region to institute a work from home policy at the start of the pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about the leadership role that tech has played in the community and what should tech be thinking about as we emerge from this stage of the pandemic? Sure. I, I love that question, Lenny. You know, tech has done so much because we are such a big part of the economy here. And so you're talking about the broader economy in a lot of ways when you talk about tech. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of what uh, we've tried to do at Twitter, not just to talk about Twitter, but hopefully to hold us accountable to keep doing these things, to inspire us and others to keep doing more things like this. Uh, so one, we sent everybody home on March 11th and we discouraged people coming to the office the week prior because we wanted to prioritize safety and minimizing spread of the virus. And I think us and others doing that had some impact, not just in the Bay Area in how people approach the virus, but also more broadly. Uh, two, we tried to continue to do some of the things that we've done historically. Uh, we couldn't have people come to the neighbor nest where we train people from the neighborhood with the skills they need to, to get and be successful in jobs where Twitter employees can go and volunteer. But we shifted to doing virtual programs. We shifted from our 
Twitter for good days where people go out in the community and give back to having people do it virtually, uh, where they gave over a thousand hours at a time, twice a year uh, through their screens to help out in ways that they could. We used our kitchens to make over 18,000 meals uh, with our partners uh, who work in and uh, keep our, our buildings safe uh, to make sure that we could feed people who were in need. These are examples of things that we were able to do uh, along with matching employees' gifts and making about a million dollars of grants ourselves to neighborhood nonprofits uh, that are so important to the mid-market area and helping uh, rebuild that area and get it to a better place. When we look ahead, though, there's so much more for tech and the broader economy to do. I'm not sure that as uh, business leaders that we have the same partnership that we could with the governments in the Bay Area that we do as much in an organized fashion to help not just our company's needs, but to help the broader uh, challenges that we all face. It's something that I think a lot about and where I think there's still a ton of opportunity in front of us as we look beyond the virus and think about the next decade. Thanks, Ned. Um, we're obviously at a crucial point in the next stage of how business reacts to the virus as well. And as you noted, you and some of your fellow tech leaders in San Francisco were one of the earliest to move remote. And actually, as you said, was very important for decisions that were made in Sacramento and elsewhere. How are you and your colleagues thinking about the move back into the office, hybrid future work type of questions? I know it's a big question, but where are you on the, where are we in coming back to work? Well, this is a fascinating time in the economy because many businesses realized that they didn't need to be in an office with physical presence in front of all their colleagues all the time in order to do their work. There are others for whom that isn't true. Uh, we've been running Twitter virtually for almost a year and a half now, and it's helped us accelerate something that Jack, our CEO, has talked about for a long time, which is trying to decentralize our workforce. We want to hire the best people, regardless of where they are on the planet, to do their best work at Twitter. For some, they're introverts or they're writing code, and whether they're on a sofa or in a coffee shop or in our office, we're agnostic. There are others who may work in a data center where it's hard to do that if you aren't physically there. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I think we've realized are possible from home or from other places uh, that not, nobody challenged themselves about before this. So Twitter's told people that they don't have to come back ever, but we also know that our offices will be a, an important part of how we work, bringing teams together at the beginning of projects or at the end, giving people a place to work who are extroverted like me or who may need a place to be productive because they don't have one at home, given whatever their setup might be. I think that hybrid approach is going to approach is going to be a lot of what you see from a lot of tech companies. And this is just going to be another thing that somebody considers when they decide where to work. You'll consider the field, you'll consider the culture at the company, you'll consider whether it's an office only, a fully remote, or like us, a hybrid culture. And companies are going to differentiate themselves about how well they do this. Now, I think, you know, Lenny, we tried to open our offices in July in San Francisco and New York. We required people to be vaccinated. And a couple of weeks later, it just became clear that given this hybrid approach and given the Delta variant, that it just wasn't prudent to have the offices open. So we'll try again soon, um, but it'll be with that hybrid approach in mind. Okay, great. Thanks, Ned. And I, we'll come back to this question around how does that nature of where people live and work affect what the future of the Bay Area looks like. But my one, I want to come back to you 
for a minute, Sam, and you talked a little bit about the importance of having a a view about what the future is and a, and a, a rallying cry, if you will, for the Bay Area. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about that and, and why we need one? Yeah. So, you know, some of the thinking started, Lenny, back at when we're in the middle of the pandemic. And, and so first I should say, you know, coming up, we had a we had a rule that we could talk about our house, but nobody else could talk about our house. Right. We could we could give our brother or our sister a hard time, but nobody else better give our brother or sister a hard time. And so what I found doing, you know, as we were going through the middle of the pandemic and, and to me, San Francisco and the Bay Area was was really on the leading edge of doing things that we should have been doing to to curve, um, to smash the curve or, or to flatten the curve. But what we kept getting and even before the pandemic was was people taking pot shots at the Bay Area, people just continuing to take pot shots of all of the things that are that are wrong in the Bay Area. And as you said, we we know we have our share of problems and everywhere else has its share of problems as well. But continue to take those pot shots. And I was okay with those pot shots until people who lived in the Bay Area, that they started to get down and they started to to not think about the optimism of the Bay Area and what was magical about it, that they began to get down. And then that's when we started to hear the things about the exodus and, and, and people leaving. And it was and it was when my my friend Mimi Haas sent a few of us an article and it talked about the 1850s and what happened after 1850 in San Francisco. And the article started with all of the things that were happening in San Francisco in 1850. And if you didn't know you were reading an article about the 1850s, you would think it was happening now. And then it went on to talk about all of the incredible innovations and inventions and, it, and really the creation of the social safety net that still exists in San Francisco and beyond that was a result of the 1850s. And, and so we began to think at a tipping point that we need to reinstill that type of civic pride or at least remind people of that type of civic pride in our Bay Area. Because one thing that we know that what's worse than leaving Right. If you're going to leave, then you're going to leave. What's worse than leaving is that if you are a a resident or you're a citizen or you're a participant in the Bay Area, and if you disengage and disengaging in what's happening around you locally is a danger to the Bay Area. It is a danger to all of us because we need all of us to make what we're trying to do in the Bay Area, this great experiment work. The reason I say we need everyone is because, you know, I'm a, I, I work in the field of philanthropy, but I also talk to national philanthropists about investing in the Bay Area. And anytime I talk to someone nationally, they say, well, you got everything you need in the Bay Area. You got more billionaires than anywhere else. You got more multi-global com- uh, companies than anywhere else. You should be able to solve your, your own problems without investments from the outside. So what that tells me is that no one is coming to save us. Right. Nobody is riding in on a, on a white horse or, or Batman car or anything to save the Bay Area. That is going to be up to us to do what it is that we need to do to make this the region that we that we talk about. Right. To make our what's happening in our region uh, match the rhetoric that we talk about and the way that we talk about how we want things to happen in our region. And so that's one of the reasons why we're going to be kicking off this made for the made by the Bay campaign to remind people of that civic pride, to remind people of why they came here, why they stay here and to actually begin to envision what a different Bay Area, what a different Bay Area looks like. 
because I know we have what it, I know we have what it takes. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that we have what it takes and that is really up to us uh, to make those things, to make those things happen. That again, no one is coming to save us. It's up to the people on this call, it's up to the people who are listening, and it's up to those who are out there at work that don't have the ability to come in and listen today. That's that's great, Sam. I love the Made by the Bay idea and look forward to uh, learning more about the rollout of the initiative and participating in it as it, as it makes sense. Um, I'm now going to open it up more broadly to everyone to be part of this conversation and individually calling on you. But I do want to uh, start that with uh, referencing back to the article that you mentioned, Sam, I do remember reading that as well. And it may have even been in the Chronicle, Heather, if I remember, um, a little bit of a historical look at the periods in time where San Francisco and the Bay Area had been written off as the end of, you know, this was the, whether it was then it was the gold rush or the whether it was at the end of World War II, it was all of this immigration and, and economic development that centered around building the Pacific fleet for World War II, somehow the Bay Area reinvented itself, or whether it was, uh, and you'll remember this well, Ned, the, the uh, internet bubble burst, and oh, that was all just a fantasy of everyone moving to the Bay Area, and now they all went back because they couldn't be millionaires on their PowerPoint. Um, and it does feel a little bit like we're at that, that tipping point, if you will, or that opportunity right now, given the pandemic and the nature of of work, et cetera, in the Bay Area, and that we're kind of an inflection point. I'd just like each of you, whoever wants to start around, you know, how do you think about the mindset as we go into that? Um, you know, there's a difference between uh, exiting or just being blindly loyal to the Bay Area and using our voice to say, how do we, what's the mindset we want to take as we head into that? And, and um, I don't want to call on you, Heather, but I'll call on you since you, you were out feeling what people are feeling about these things. How, what, what are you sensing and how do you think about that question? Um, I think the key to moving forward is to stop just talking about things. I totally agree with Sam that our rhetoric is one thing and our actions are another. And um, especially City Hall is famous for task force and commissions and let's have 85 community meetings before we decide anything. And let's have everybody under the sun weigh in on this one topic 5,000 times. And sure enough, then it's five years and you've accomplished nothing. So I think what was really impressive with the way um, the city responded to COVID-19 was that we very uncharacteristically moved extremely fast. The city was the first to shut down um, to protect our health and we saved lives. If, um, if the United States as a country had acted with the speed that San Francisco did, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of Americans. Um, we, same with the vaccine rollout, we were really quick. We moved into lots of neighborhoods that um, weren't taking the vaccine as quickly as others and homeless encampments and made sure to get as many people as possible vaccinated. The library um, today has a come get a book, get a vaccine. Like it's just great, fast, creative responses. And I'd like to see... Um, that continue as we move forward on a host of other issues. Um, stop with the idea that everything has to take years of, of discussion and just decide, like, what do we need to do? What's the fastest way to do it and get it done? Great. Ned, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, Heather, I think those are great points. I, I like to think about the Bay Area, the city. Uh, we're an institution that has to continue to earn the trust of the people who live and work here. They have a choice. And there are lots of anecdotes floating around now about people who've made choices to live somewhere else. 
And I think it's incumbent upon uh, those of us who want to be here uh, for the rest of our lives to uh, make sure that we do move fast, Heather, to make sure that we aren't focused on one idea as the solution around the mental health challenges that we see around the substance abuse challenges and the affordability challenges that we see, but instead to try a whole bunch of things and to go back to that progressive, optimistic mindset that has made San Francisco so special for the last 150, 175 years and to bring that to these challenges. A lot of times politics gets in the way. A lot of times people get busy or feel sorry for themselves or make excuses around those things, but that that won't serve us to point fingers at the folks who are leaving the same way as it will for those of us who are staying to get together with a a customer-oriented mindset for those who who we want to continue to invest in in living here and building families here. Yeah, and and Lenny, if I can if Please. I can add, if I can add to that, I think you know, and it's was something we were discussing a little bit briefly before we came on is is one of the mindsets or a type of mindset is is what is it that we're willing to give up? What is it that we're willing to sacrifice to to actually have the region that we're proud to call home? Um, and, and so a lot of times what happens in, you know, the, the rhetoric it is not just rhetoric. People actually believe it, but they believe it until it act, until it has an impact on them. Right. We we really believe as a as a community, as the Bay Area, as a city, that everyone who's homeless should have a place to live. But some of us just don't want it to be next to us. We really believe that we should have a level of income inequality, of, of, of income equalness. But no one wants to make less money or have less profit in order to make that happen, right? And, and so until we are willing to, to give something up, to, until we're willing to make small sacrifices for the betterment of not just, our, not just ourselves, but our environment and our community, that that's going to be that that's going to be important for us. And so I think, again, I talked about growing up in Mississippi and, and one of the things about growing up in in poverty and not having a lot is that it takes the whole village to make sure you have you have what it is that you need. Right. It takes everybody to come in and pitch in. And that means that they may not that they may not have all that they need, but we're we're all going to be in this together. And I think in the Bay Area. Uh, what we have to get back to is what is it that we're willing to give up? What is it that we're willing to do? What is it that we're willing to sacrifice? Right. Even as we talk about, even as we talk about vaccines, my role and what my friends have said is like, look, let's go, let's just go and convince one person that we know who hasn't taken the vaccine to get it. Let's not wait on Joe Biden. Let's not wait on Kamala. Let's not wait on anybody else. If we just convince one person, that is something that we have control over. And I think if we got to that, that we can control the things that we can control and give up, have small sacrifices that we can, that's the mindset that we need to move the Bay Area beyond where it was in 2019. That's great, Sam. Um, One of the things as I've read about and looked back and written a little bit around these eras of major transformations in the Bay Area, um, it, it often happens after one of these major events whether it was the end of the gold rush, the end of World War I and the progressive movement or the end of World War II and the move from a wartime to a peacetime economy, that we had real different kinds of engagement with the sectors working together or at least 
thinking about different roles and that we had new kinds of institutions emerge out of that. So, you know, the Commonwealth Club played an important role early on in convening some of those conversations in uh, the midst of World War II. It was uh, then Governor Warren and the major business leaders in the Bay Area that convened to talk about how do we move to a peacetime economy and things like BART came out of that. Also at that time, uh, Kaiser was basically an agglomeration of of manufacturing companies. And the only thing that's now left of those companies in the Bay Area is Kaiser Permanente, which was actually designed to keep workers healthy and opened up to the entire workforce at that time, not just the Kaiser companies. So there are things that came out of those challenges. So I want to talk a little bit about and ask you to think to talk with us because you are all in different sectors of the economy is what do you think the role of of your sector in the economy is in this conversation going forward? And, uh, you know, whether it's the nonprofit sector, I don't we don't have someone from government. I can talk about that. And Ned, the private sector, Heather, the role of the media. How, how do how do what what do you think the role of the sector is in and engage in this conversation and move in the Bay Area forward? Well, there's so much opportunity to rethink every part of how we operate. Of our, we may need the roads to serve different purposes if people aren't going to offices as much. There are a bunch of buildings downtown which may have different utilization as offices tomorrow than they did two years ago. Uh, bandwidth when available is a lot faster and allows things like what we're doing right now to happen in a way that it couldn't reliably do a decade ago. Uh, as you apply these to how we work, how we live, how we get from one place to another, how we use these spaces, you have the opportunity to rethink uh, things, not just because of a, a virus and how it impacted us, but because of how all these other uh, factors uh, come to play. Uh, I hope that the Bay Area broadly, that technology companies specifically uh, can challenge norms and inspire others, not just in the Bay Area, but beyond to rethink all of these things. That hybrid work becomes much more common. That you hire people because they're the best people to do the work, not because they live in the town where your company is based. A lot of good should accrue to the Bay Area from that. I don't think we should be afraid of talent flight as a result. We should earn people choosing to work here, not just because they're tethered to a job, but because they've chosen San Francisco and the Bay Area for the beauty and all the other great things that Heather described uh, at the beginning. If we can inspire others uh, in that way, I think we'll continue to push ourselves uh, through the, the gratification from that inspiration, from the success that it brings to the Bay Area and to the companies that are doing it. Thanks. Uh, Sam, what, what role does the nonprofit sector play in this? Yeah, I think the role that the nonprofit sector is going to play, Lenny, is uh, similar to the business, similar to the government, is that what we've seen is that there were trends that we were already seeing coming, um, but they, but we've actually accelerated um, to that spot. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, one of the things about uh, some nonprofits is that there is a, a total reliance on on in-person meetings, right? And when you're having in-person meetings in the Bay Area, if you're traveling around, then it means that there, because of the traffic, there are only a few meetings that you can actually have a day. And so what the pandemic, as an example, has, has forced people to do is to reimagine that because you couldn't even travel. And so you had to do things 
virtually. You had to increase your your engagement with people in a different way. And I think those are the types of of, of innovations that are going to continue on. That also serves, right? And as a person who ran a nonprofit is still running one. Rent is incredibly, having a big footprint in an office is incredibly expensive here in the Bay Area. And so if we can actually reduce that footprint from the from, from a uh, space perspective, then that actually gives us more money to actually put out into the community and serve the people that we're trying to serve. And so I think that's going to have a tremendous impact on the Bay Area. And then finally, we, we, we talk about the things that have happened. And so as tragic as it was, the, the, the 89 earthquake in San Francisco made room for me. The reason that my journey and, and my move to San Francisco and the ability to, to uptake there uh, was possible was possibly by the eighty nine earthquake, and I think about my I think about my cousin who moved here with me in, in nineteen ninety one, and because a lot of people moved away in 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 nineteen eighty nine after the earthquake, he got a summer job working at the Golden Gate Bridge, it's supposed to be a temporary summer job. He just retired from that job last year. He has created a whole life for himself. And so I think there are going to be things that we're going to see um, five years, 10 years, that we didn't even know. And, and that's the final point is that let's not get stuck into what it is that we see now. Let's be open-minded and say that there are some solutions and some innovations that we don't even know that they're going to exist yet. And let's be open-minded to them as we move the Bay Area, as we move the Bay Area forward uh, in a more equitable way. Hey, Sam, I bet you can raise as much or more money virtually as you were doing in person. I bet you get more meetings because people have fewer excuses to say no. I bet the meetings are shorter because you realize you don't need a full hour sometimes to do these things. And I bet you can cast a wider net because you're not constrained to the Bay Area. You're constrained to people who are passionate about the same topics as you who may not all be here. Um, and if you, if you extrapolate that beyond tipping point, to other nonprofits or to other organizations, there's so much impact that can that one can have uh, in ways that they may not have been able to before um, because of what we've opened our eyes to over the last year and a half. Yeah, and I definitely want to get Heather in there, but that's absolutely um, on a lot of levels true. But what we're also understanding uh, at Tipping Point is that at the end of the day, we're still humans and humans love that love that other human contact. And so the ability, and, and so one of the power of, of Tipping Point has been that we've been able to do it as a community. I take real seriously the, the community in Tipping Point. And so there's something different about coming together and solving a problem together than doing it, than doing it, than doing it separately, kind of in a one-on-one. And so I think for Tipping Point and other nonprofits, when we we built that muscle of how do we engage people individually and how do we have that? But when we're able to bring people back together in a community way, in a, in a huge rally and cry type of way, in a huge made by the Bay type of way that we're going to see exponential growth um, and, and be able to do some amazing things as a, as a region. Um, 1989, um, also enabled the Commonwealth Club to have its new headquarters. If the Embarcadero Freeway were still there, we wouldn't have the beautiful view that someday we'll all be able to see when we're doing this in person rather than on uh, on Zoom. But Heather, let's get you into this conversation. So 
the media and more broadly, the, the public sphere? How, how should they engage and how should you engage in this question about the future of the Bay Area? Uh, just a side note that the pandemic and sending everybody home um, to uh, create a news, newspaper from home, which was a crazy idea, but somehow worked, um, enabled us to finally remodel our newsroom. So um, it's not the disgusting um, piles and piles of notebooks and, <laughs> and papers from decades ago. We actually cleaned it. So um, that, was a, <laughs> that was a plus. But um, I think that um, local journalism has become more important than ever. Um, Last year showed that people really need good, clear, reliable information. Um, as awful as the pandemic and Donald Trump and wildfires and orange skies were for us as people, um, they were really good for, for newspaper subscriptions. So um, we found a lot of a bigger audience and um, people just really rely on solid information rather than like, what does your cousin say on Facebook? But like, what is the true, true information um, we have a new data team, which I also find is especially important because people in San Francisco have ideas. They think they know what's happening with crime or they think they know what's happening with housing prices or um, with drug addiction. But we actually do the data. This is what's actually happening. Um, so um, that's been really important. But I think that the media can play a role, too, in providing solutions. Um, so we need to shine a light on the problems, but also talk about what are some solutions? Like um, not long ago, I toured um, with Sam, a, a project that the Tipping Point is doing with modular housing across the street from the Hall of Justice and wrote a column about that and how that's cheaper to provide housing um, for homeless people than um, the traditional way of building it in San Francisco. And it's controversial because um, the unions don't really like it, but um, it's just shining a light on another idea that that could work. Um, same thing with a column I did recently about safe consumption sites, which um, have been very successful in countries around the world, like Canada, Australia, and throughout Europe, where people can go do their own drugs. They're not given drugs by the government, but they can go um, do them inside under supervision. And um, in the decades they've existed in other places around the world, there's never been an overdose death. And on the contrary, here in San Francisco, we had more than 700 overdose deaths last year, which was far higher than the number of COVID deaths we had, even though you wouldn't know it by what people spent their time talking about. Um, so I wrote a column saying that even though it's not allowed under state and federal rules, maybe we should just open one anyway, because I think it's better than people doing it on the corner of Turk and Hyde and passing out at the feet of dealers and we don't really do anything about that. So that's not allowed either <laughs> under the law. Um, but I'd rather have it be moved inside and prevent people from dying. And so um, we'll see if that moves the needle at all at city hall, but um, supervisors do agree with that idea and they will be introducing legislation, pushing the mayor to just go for it. If there was, it's a better time to do it under Joe Biden and Kamala Harris than it would have been in the Trump administration. So give it a, well, I shouldn't say give it a shot, um, but <laughs> try it and see what happens. It couldn't be really worse than the situation now. So that's an example of, of shining a light on solutions and um, trying to move the city forward. So just a quick follow up, Heather, maybe just be me because I'm a data geek and I get paid to solve problems for a living. Um, but what's the I, I love the data work and I love your solution oriented columns. But do you get what's the reaction been of readers to that kind of work? 
it's very polarized. Um, some people think I'm a hero. Some people hate me. So I have a thick skin and it kind of rolls off my back. But um, the good thing is that it's not the same groups of people hating me. <laughs> so I figure if I'm pissing off different people on different days, then I'm probably doing a good job. But um, one thing I will say, um, Sam kind of nodded to it earlier, but um, San Franciscans can be very, very um, progressive in their ideas, the big ideas about what they'd like to see in their city. But when you talk about their own neighborhood or their own block, they freak out. So um, another example of a solution is talking about allowing um, ending single family zoning in San Francisco and allowing um, homeowners, if they want, no bulldozers, this would be completely optional to um, develop their own homes into fourplexes um, with the idea of adding housing units throughout the city and hopefully bringing down the costs. Um, that's a proposal now at City Hall. Um, and that idea, woo, <laughs> my email inbox was, <laughs> was not a fun place to be. But, um, you know, homeowners, if you're a homeowner in San Francisco, you're a millionaire on paper. I mean, you have a ton of money and um, you, most of them say they want um, all types of people to be able to live in San Francisco. But the thought that their neighbor could build a fourplex next door and maybe erase a little bit of their sunlight or bring down their property value by a tiny margin just, you know, seems to be the end of the world for some people. So I think that kind of thinking really needs to change. Lenny, Keep getting different people to be pissed off at you, Heather. It's good to provoke <laughs> the conversation. Lenny, um, I want to I, I challenge you to, to come out of your role a little bit as moderator, because I think one of the, as you said, one of the missing sectors here is government, right? And, and so it has a, uh, it definitely has a lot of power. I believe that it is the only sector that has the ability to, to truly get anything to scale. And what I mean by getting it to scale is getting it to everyone who actually needs it. And, you know, as you said, and I think Heather said, we've seen government move with, with just speed, right? Look at how fast we house thousands of people uh, when we needed to during the pandemic. And so my question for you is that how do we, how do we continue to maneuver government and how do we continue to impress upon government uh, to do its job, because it's going to take every part. It's going to take the business sector. It's going to take the media. It's going to take the nonprofit sector. But a huge key role in that is government. And, and some people feel that it's done a terrific job. And some people feel that it, that there have been a lot of failures during the pandemic. What's your what's your thought on that as a as a as a government uh, kind of person? So. Um... I'll do moderator's privilege and say I'm not in the government anymore. But uh, as a, uh, I, I do think there's an, a really important opportunity as we're coming through COVID to you know, not to just use President Biden's term, but we really do need to build back better here. We cannot just say this was, you know, we'll get back to where we were and everything will be fine again. And there is a real opportunity to do that, I think, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, particularly, and to leverage the scale of California's resources that the government can help with. Um, prior to the pandemic, the governor's state of the state address for the first time in California history and only the second time in the country's history was on one topic, housing and homelessness. And then the pandemic hit and we're not we're only now starting to pick up that conversation again. And we need to pick it up with urgency and speed. We cannot deal with the issues unless we have an honest conversation around how do we address the homelessness issue? How do we do what Heather was suggesting and make sure that we build enough housing so that people who want to work here can afford to live here? Um, those problems are getting worse, and we can't just wait for 
the federal government to solve those issues. We need to have every sector saying we're going to do that. And as you said, Sam, be prepared to say, you know, yes, it's going to we're going to do that. And it's not theoretically in someone else's neighborhood. It's going to happen next to me, too. It's not like we're resource constrained to do that. It's a, a will and a public good problem. And if it were me, I would pick one of those and say, we're going to make a big dent on this issue. We're going to really totally eliminate homelessness in San Francisco in the next decade. Take like everything that. it takes, you know, that kind of stuff. Because, you know, if you put if you said here's a big problem and got the collective intellectual, financial and human resources of San Francisco together, I don't I can't think of a better place in the country to go after some of those things. Um, it'll be fun and it'll be a lot of columns for Heather to write about that. So I'm, I'm going to flip that question around a little bit, too. And we've only got about 10 minutes left. I'm trying to build in some of the questions that we're getting from the audience here. But let me ask you the question. If you were uh, had the mayors here, which you all do, and said there's one thing that you should do in the next six months, year to make the city and, the, and its role in the region a better, what would you what would you tell her? So for me, I think the the number one issue that I hear San Franciscans and Bay Area and Bay Area residents talk about is the homeless issue. And so if we can, if we can put our arms around that, if we can actually begin to have some wins, right? It, it feels like it's been a, a, a long time since we've had some big wins around homelessness. If we can begin to have some wins and show, uh, and show people that we're actually having some success. And I know there's been some success. Uh, I'm, we're working on that issue every day. I think that, uh, that would go a long way. You know, I think, you know, when I, when I talk to residents who kids have to walk to school, uh, past people who are, who are sleeping on the past people who are sleeping on the street, you know, it, it is not just the sight of it, but it is the mental health and the, and the questions that they ask um, when they get home about what it is that we're doing about it and the inability to focus, uh, to focus on at school because they're, they're continuing to think about what it was that they, that they, have just encountered. And so I think that's a really, I think that's a really big one. And going back to Heather's point about, about taking a shot, right? Like, like, let's just, like, let's just try it. I remember the last time that I can think about that, that San Francisco just did it. And that was, and that was when then Mayor Newsom married people on the steps of city hall. And I remember a week after that, going to Washington DC and getting into a taxi and someone saying, you know, oh, you're from San Francisco and all of the things that came out after that. But just in that amount of time, do you see where we have come as a, as a country and what our beliefs and how are the narrative around that has actually changed? And it was a San Francisco who had the guts in the, in the, to, to be the first to do that. And I think if we continue to have that type of mindset around homelessness, around our education, around our education system, and, and so which... We have to invest in public education if we want uh, a pathway out of poverty for our, our kids. And so if we keep that mindset, I think we'll do well. But it's the homeless issue, I think, is really number one and top of mind for everyone that I talk to in the Bay Area. Hey, Ned, I'm sure you have the mayor's ear already, but what, what would be what's, what's your top one? Well, I'd just take Sam's and build upon it. When you think about homelessness, so often it's affordability mental health or substance abuse. And if we can break down homelessness to those three components and think about how to address them at scale, as you said, Lenny, the same way that we approach other problems or opportunities uh, with capital and ingenuity and a lot of hard work, I suspect with 
policy and capital, uh, which requires a lot of people working together who historically haven't had a lot of success working together, that we could make a big difference on each of those three. Heather gave a really good example on the the fourplexes, but there are so many other things that uh, we can do when we break down a problem. I'm, I'm reminded of when Elon Musk talked about how to get to the, to Mars, he broke it down to five problems because it, getting to Mars sounds impossible. But when you break it down to we got to get to here and then we got to get to here and then we got to get to it, and each of them is a different problem. And then you assign those to different people who are expert in those things or are close enough to being an expert, you can get a lot more done. So I hope we can break down homelessness and we can address it. I hope the business community can play a big part in it, not where we're advocating for our own needs, but where we're advocating for our city and our region in a way that is meaningful to everybody around us, to the families of our employees, to the people who teach our kids, uh, and to doing the right thing for the long term. Great. Heather? I totally agree with what's already been said, that housing and homelessness are the top issues. But to be different and to point to an issue I don't think the mayor's been great on is um, the issue of turning streets over to people. There's been a number of roads closed during the pandemic in San Francisco so that people had space to exercise um, while remaining socially distanced. And it turned into a huge silver lining in San Francisco. Um, The slow streets, as well as streets entirely close to cars like the Great Highway, JFK Drive and Golden Gate Park at one point, Twin Peaks, um, they became just these real special gathering places for families and music. Uh, Musicians played concerts in the street, block parties, um, spending time outdoors, much more of a European feel. We like to say that we're a European city, but, um, but the outdoor element didn't exist so much until recently. And I'd like to see a lot of that continue. She did make parklets permanent. um, So small businesses can retain those areas outside to serve diners and, and have concerts and stuff. But um, I think that whole concept needs to continue so that there's more green space, more pedestrian promenades. Um, You could have a web all over San Francisco where there were not cars. There's 1,200 miles of cars, so there's still plenty of space for cars, even if you take some of those miles away. But I think just that concept of making our city a place where people want to be outside um, and want to be out of their cars is really important. Excellent. So we're down to the last few minutes here. And in addition to giving you each an opportunity for any closing thoughts that you might have, um, I want to ask you one uh, aspirational question. So we're, I asked you each, what would you do if you told the mayor, this is the thing you should focus on. But I want you to think, as you were saying a little bit earlier, Sam, if we're 10 years out and looking back and saying San Francisco and the Bay Area were a real model that someone in history is going to be writing as they did historically about how we reinvented itself. What, what do you aspire to? What, what is something that would get you excited to say, this is San Francisco and the Bay area at its best. What, what, what could we be? And I will let you uh, choose who wants to go first. Oh, I'll take that one first. And I, and I think for me, it's going to be pretty simple that, that we have become a place where prosperity and poverty don't have to coexist, that those are two things that don't have to coexist together. And and so I think if I was writing the story of San Francisco is that we would have made gains to going back to to Ned's five points. I don't know what the point would be in 10 years, but that we have made gains toward um, being a region, being a place where prosperity and, and poverty didn't have to coexist. Excellent. Heather or Ned? 
I'd like San Francisco to be a place where um, people of all different backgrounds and professions can afford to live. I'd like my neighborhood to be a place where public school teachers and nonprofit workers and social workers and artists and um, the guy who fixes your bike or whoever it is can all live together in one neighborhood, walk to work, not be in their cars all the time, uh, get around on buses and BART and get wherever they need to be and live together and, um, and not have this huge stratification between the people in the monster homes and the people in the tent encampments outside, but much more of a middle ground. I definitely want to live in that city you two described, and I just build upon it uh, by saying I, I hope we move from being a place that's known for uh, solving or uh, and creating really big companies around technology and, and wealth around it that people come here for to being a place that solves all of the problems uh, that we see uh, in society and that people flock here to be a part of the uh, inspiring progressive, optimistic community that sees any challenge and can tackle it, not just those around technology. Excellent. So we're just about out of time, and I'd like you each to close with any closing thoughts that you haven't had a chance to to talk about. But I also want you to reflect for a minute on what you think uh, individuals should be doing to be part of this solution rather than it's somebody else's problem. And kind of what are you what are you excited about spending your time on personally in the next while here as we reimagine how we uh, think about what the rallying cry for for San Francisco and the Bay Area can be? Yeah. Going back, Lynn, believe it is doing a couple of things. One is creating that 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 family mission plan or that individual mission plan and writing it down and saying, this is what I'm going to do to make the Bay Area a better place. And going back and looking at it and holding yourself accountable for that. You know, one of the one of the tricks I love to do is email is uh, to actually snail mail myself something. And, and so that I receive it at a particular time so that I can open it up and see if I've done what it is that, that I said I was going to do. The second thing that we need to do, and this is why I, this is why I love Heather and her column is that we also need to hold each other accountable and that we need to hold each other accountable to do what it is that we say we're going to do and do it in a way that we, um, that we said we were going to do it in, but we don't have to be mean uh, uh, to do that, that, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that before you can hold someone accountable, you have to first hold them. And that means that you have to understand where it is that they're coming from as well. And, and so those are my aspirations. And what I think people can do is hold themselves accountable, but also uh, be ready to hold each other accountable in a loving way. Great. Thanks, Sam. Ned or Heather? We often say at work that the worst decision is no decision and that there are lots of right answers to problems. And everybody just needs to grab an oar. Some people will have capital, some people will have time, some people will have specific expertise, but we can't be throwing rocks, we can't be making excuses, we can't be chiming in from the cheap seats. Uh, These are real problems that are gonna require significant elbow grease and lots of ingenuity and different approaches than we've taken in the past. We all have something different to offer and we all choose to live here because of that diversity. And we need to bring it to bear to solve these problems the same way that we do the problems that we face and, and however we spend our, our days. Thanks Heather. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that um, everybody can contribute something um, for some people it will be money 
For some people, it will be time. There are endless places in the city that need volunteers. Your public schools need volunteers. Uh, the food bank needs volunteers. Um, even doing something simple like carrying packs of socks when you're walking around downtown and giving them out when you see a homeless person. There are a lot of little easy things you can do to help. I also think it's important that when you support something that City Hall is considering, let them know too. It doesn't just have to be a forum for, I hate this idea and I'm going to scream at this meeting about it, but maybe you should write a letter to your supervisor and say, I do want fourplexes in my neighborhood, or I do want a safe consumption site in my neighborhood. So, um, letting it be known when you do support what's going on and you do support the positive change. Cause I think they tend to hear from the people who want San Francisco to remain frozen in Amber forever. Um, so um, do what you can, whatever it is, and also subscribe to your local paper. <laughs> okay. Terrific. Um, well, we've unfortunately reached that time in the program where we need to, to sign off, but I'd, I'd like to uh, and in addition to thanking our guests, which I will do in a moment, with a, a note of encouragement, as you've heard from Sam and, and Ned and Heather, um, San Francisco and the Bay Area have been a place historically where we take big challenges and moments in time and reinvent ourselves into something that's better. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but if COVID and remote work and the challenge of housing and homelessness and the issues that we think about what's possible in San Francisco to be the place where, as Sam and Heather and Ned described it, that they would love to be and have their children, our children, our grandchildren as excited about coming here as we all were. I think we're all going to need to dive in and do all the things that we suggested. And I think you would uh, all on our audience suggest that we need more people like Sam and Ned and Heather who help and guide us in that conversation and weighing in as they have been to help ensure that San Francisco and the Bay Area continue to be, uh, as we have been historically, a shining light where people around the world look and say, I want to be like you guys. So with that, please join me in thanking Sam Cobbs, the CEO of Tipping Point Community, Heather Knight, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and Ned Siegel, the chief financial officer of Twitter, for spending their time with us today. We also want to thank all of our viewers who've been watching and will watch or listen to us in the future. And reminder that this program was held in partnership with the Tipping Point community, and we appreciate your ongoing support and look forward to the work that you are you talked about today as we think about the Better Bay. And I'm Lenny Mendoza, and with that, this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.